Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome to The Ruck. Times of Sunday Times podcast. Wow, what an incredible weekend. It was a weekend where, for me and for others, international rugby became the biggest sport in town. Today, to discuss it, we have two giants of the front row, as well as journalism, uh, ex-prop Alex Lowe of The Times, now The Times rugby correspondent, and ex-prop uh, are you still an ex? Are you an ex prop? Yeah, you I'm an ex prop. Yeah, a, a very uh, well. We got a very ex prop in Alex Lowe, and an only merely ex prop in Al Dimmock from Rugby World. The, the golfing class between the two is enormous. By yeah, the way, Alex was pretty good. That's what I, that's what I thought. <laughs> Alex, where were you on the weekend? I think I may have spotted you anyway. But I, where yeah, were you? I and was, what was your highlight? Well, well, my gosh! So I was at Twickenham. Um, incredible game. Uh, We'll put, it, we'll put it in the context of, of where England are and, and, and England under Eddie Jones. Um, it was a landmark weekend for me because I, I had my first mince pie of, of the year, which is, which is pretty early, pretty early to go. But um, I was working Sunday and the family went out for a roast and uh, I couldn't go because I was working. So they brought me back a takeaway and a box of mince pies, which I think is probably the kids' hint at saying they want to get the Christmas tree up. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, aside, aside from the rugby... It was um, the first one of the year. That's, that's known as the Z-Plan diet, I believe, that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like this is Mince Pies Anonymous. Is it bad that I'd had my first one weeks ago? Wait, uh, it, it's not. I had to hold off, actually. Yeah, yeah but was that a late Mince Pie from last year, or was it the first one of this year, Al? Uh, n- well, all I know is the wife came in with a box, and the box was empty the next day. They so. don't last very long, do they, those no. boxes? Al, I think you may be in Twickenham as well. What, <laughs> yeah, your, what are your memories? Well, my memory was of, of seeing a, a phenomenal game at Twickenham and going, God, geez, that was a bloody good test match, and then scrambling around Twickenham amongst... Um, the zombies uh, who'd enjoyed themselves at the festivities that day, trying to find a screen somewhere that I could witness what I think we'll probably go on to talk about was the game of the weekend, yes. France versus New Zealand. So, you know, it's just head spinning, trying to keep up with all the test rugby that was on, on at the weekend. And geez, what a spectacle it was. Well, my head was spinning because unlike you two, I was finding on the whistle and on a 3.30 kickoff is not very, not very easy, but at least the game mapped out as we expected it, or did it. In the second half, I said to Barnsley, this is a 20-point win for South Africa. 
uh, as South Africa won ball after ball after ball, marched 75 metres in the same move down the right wing. Bandy said, forget 20, it's going to be 40. In fact, in the end, it was a noble England-England victory, sealed in the, in, in the last seconds, electrified the crowd, and at the end of it, you thought, what on earth happened there? But actually, that was a nice feeling to have because predictability is the thief of drama. Also today, clearly we'll be talking about the first French victory over the All Blacks in the Stade de France since 1973. They also meet in the same venue to kick off the Rugby World Cup. Wow, what a game. We'll also be talking about Wales beating Australia and all the other issues on an amazing weekend. But first, we have um, a live match reporter, the man who was there, lucky him, John Westerby of The Times. Okay, well now, as promised, over to the man who was there, our eyewitness, John Westerby. John, um, we saw some great games on the weekend. I suspect you feel you were at the greatest, though. Uh, it wasn't the worst place to be on Saturday night, it has to be said. Yeah, I was quite lucky, wasn't I? <laughs> yeah, that's the last time that'll happen. We're all going next time. Um, uh, well, well, that. <laughs> did you... Um, um, was it always on the cards? Was there something in the air before the game? Or, or was, did it also look like the New Zealanders were coming back into it at one stage and sweeping to inevitable victory? Or were France always going to win that? France definitely weren't always going to win it. It really did, after half-time, have a feel that the All Blacks were becoming relentless. And you know those, those three tries they scored really did speak of a team that had... Um, woken itself up at half time and it, it did feel inevitable and probably in times gone by uh france would have would have buckled at that stage mm. you you asked whether before the game there was there was a sense it could happen i don't know how you guys have felt about the stade de france it's never been one of my favorite stadiums um is it very impressive visually but the sort of acoustics of the place and, and the atmosphere i've always felt it lacked a little bit um it really did feel different on on Saturday, and I'm not just talking about the, the the reaction after the game. Beforehand, there was a real buzz about the place. I mean, it's it's a big project towards the World Cup, isn't it? The, the France, it's a it's a national project, and and the the crowd really did feel behind the team in, in a way that I've not sensed before in, in Paris. And it, the atmosphere was brilliant. It was brilliant before the game. It was brilliant at the start of the game. The early tries helped the momentum. And um, you know, once they once they did respond in that second half to the uh, to the All Blacks comeback, uh, there, there was a you know an amazing spirit about the side that you know that I think sort of augurs well for for that that developing France team. Hi, John, Alan here. Um, I, I imagine wow. the atmosphere at the Stade de France always tends to hinge on the fact that there's non-alcoholic beer on for sale only in the stadium. But <laughs> you mentioned there that it felt like New Zealand were coming back. What was the atmosphere like at that moment where the, I believe there was a point in it and Roman and Tamak went, sod this, I'm going to have a go from my own end goal area? I mean, that must have felt, did the atmosphere suck out the stadium or was the noise increased? What was it like at the time? Yeah, it was, it, the, 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 it was dipping at that time. And it was, it, that you know, that, that sense you, you get when, when there is a sense of the inevitable happening. The, the All Blacks were winning all the close quarter collisions. Everything, everything was was pointing in their direction, and it was it was precisely it was, it was back to two points, twenty seven twenty five at that point, precisely that point when Tamak picked that ball up behind his goal line, and uh, what happened after that was just absolutely magical. It really was just a, one of those magical moments 
uh, when he set off. And I mean, g- getting out from behind his own goal line was one thing, wasn't it? But that pass he gave to to Jaminé was mm. just a thing of absolute beauty, wasn't it? And and it really did turn the game because uh, because they got upfield, they didn't quite score. It would have been amazing if they'd scored, but. Uh, Ardi Survey got penalised, got yellow carded, and um, France just went on from there. You you, uh, you gave no uh, um, no doubt as to who you thought the key player was, and no, nor did the, your sub editor on the Times, and that was Antamak. Um, it is amazing, John, over the years how few great fly halves in, um, France have had over the last tw- twenty years. Is does this now seal it down? The man who made that that heroic play is he now in for the t- sort of, sort of for life? Well, he, he certainly, in, in my mind, it certainly showed that he's he's a world class number ten, and, and he's still only twenty two. He's still only won twenty odd caps, so you would think that he would continue to to progress. And um, you know, yeah, he, he looks a real deal, doesn't he? I mean, interesting, of course. I mean, he played at he played at twelve, hadn't he, in the, the previous two uh, tests for France this autumn with Jalibert at ten, um, and that's obviously something that I guess they want to have in their locker. And it's, it's a similar debate with with England, really, isn't it? But um, France went back to having a slightly more physical midfield uh, against the All Blacks. Uh, Jonathan Dante came in at number twelve and uh, played really, really well. But um, yeah, and, and, and Tamak was brilliant. I mean, he, 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 he carved the All Blacks open in the first couple of minutes and, and set them up for the, for the first try that Movaka scored. Uh, but no, it was a, it was a really out, really outstanding performance. But, Lots of lots of flashes of brilliance in there, but th- there was a there was a real a, a steeliness to France as well on on Saturday that I think is really important. That you know that their defence has obviously come on a lot in the last couple of years, but that was there again on Saturday. And also, if you looked at the the build up to and Tamak's try, I thought was really significant. That that's one where they, they did come up the middle. There was a lot of power in there, a lot of short, purposeful bursts from Antonio, from Willemzi, and people like that. Mm. So that I think that you know there is a real sort of uh, hardcore strength to the side that um, that, that suggests that you know that they, they could be around for a while. Did the uh, battle at nine live up to billing? I mean, there was a lot of uh, attention about the fact that the the pretender to the throne of of, of, of greatest nine coming up against uh, Aaron Smith, the past master. Would it, would, did that live up to top billing? Yeah, it was it was intriguing uh, that Al because um, I mean I think probably Smith. Um, Smith hasn't been, been playing much recently and I don't think he was quite at, at his best and, and DuPont I think at that stage now where he's so closely marked that it's almost um, it, he's creating space for other people around him um, he, he was still fantastic DuPont I mean you know there's so much to his game isn't there it's not it's not just about the sniping bursts or, or the little little dinks in behind you know the, the, his strength is what is the most remarkable thing for, for a nine he, he just bounces off tacklers and yeah he was he was hugely influential in his own way John, the thing that I, having been at Twickenham and, and listening to um, to the All Blacks game on the radio initially, um, the thing that, that struck me was was both games you had this second half surge from the visiting team, and the way that mm. England and and France turned it was was a commitment to play. Like they weren't as much as South Africa could do, and as much as New Zealand could do, they had this this sort of youthful exuberance in them you know within Tamac with with Marcus Smith at, for England who who just decided that the best way out of trouble was to try and play their way out of trouble um which which is a potentially a mark of of how of how that world cup's going to go because you you've got all, you've got this generation of young players now who who aren't afraid to to try things and 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 realizing and and this weekend is a classic example that that actually if you if you are bold, if you trust your skills, there there are ways out of of these dark corners that 
that some of the better teams can put you in. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be great if that's going to be the case, wouldn't it? Because in the last couple of weeks, I mean, like, you really do get reminded of the the reasons that you fall in love with the game. And that, that, that's what I thought to myself on, in Paris on Saturday night, having having watched some of the rugby that was played there. When it's played like that, it is that there 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 are no sporting events I'd rather be at. I don't think than a rugby international when it's being played like that. And so let's hope you know the the, the coaches are saying that the way the game is is being refereed is increasing ruck speed, and that's meaning that there's a greater accent on attack across the game and if, if that's going to continue in the, the way we've seen in recent weeks then uh, then all well and good for the uh, for the next World Cup John I hope you didn't think I was being rude when I said we're all coming next time I was only being expressing our je- our jealousy uh, <laughs> but let's just move on to the to the other team who, who were there um we, we all know it's stupid to write off the All Blacks, but it is incredibly rare in history that they've lost two out of two, even though they were tied at the end of the season. Traditionally, their end of the season game, they've always won. Um, is it too early to start thinking, blimey, these guys need to change, they need to change a coach or they need to change personnel? Or, in your opinion, are there the odd weak, is there um, weakness appearing here and there? It's interesting. It's going to be it's going to be a long time for them until they play again, isn't it? And having uh, having finished the season on two defeats, uh, there's going to be a lot of recriminations for them. I'm sure over the the next six months, nine months, even. Um, and I think it's probably inevitable that they were maybe a few percent down at the end of. I mean, they left New Zealand in in August, didn't they? At the end of August, they were on on tour for three months. It's probably the fact they lost the last two games is not unconnected to, to that, but. I think it's interesting to my mind when you when you do look at their side and the number of players who've got who've got seventy plus caps. It's a hugely experienced side, which obviously brings its own advantages. But you, when you weigh that up against what France did after the last World Cup, making a lot of changes there and bringing in younger players, England are doing that a little bit further down the line. Uh, should the All Blacks have been evolving a little bit more um, after the last World Cup? You've still got. Uh, you know, Retallick and, and Whitelock in the in the second row, both a huge amount of caps. Aaron Smith playing at playing at scrum half again. He's got a hundred caps. Bone Barrett's got a hundred caps. People like Dane Coles, Sam Kane, they've been been around the team a long time. They're obviously young, younger guys coming through, but I think those questions will be asked of New Zealand over the coming months. John, thanks a million. That was our man on the spot there. And uh, those of you who've not read John's excellent words in the Times. Are on Times Digital today. Um, please do so, John Westerby. Um, I mean, that was really interesting from John, and it's great to have someone that was on the ground there. And it, there was one thing that he said there that that's worth picking up on is, uh, you know, the the conversation about who is starting at ten and who's starting at twelve. Now, there's a, a feeling in the game that most teams need two, if not three, guys that can play first receiver at any time. And I'm sure we'll go on to talk about that in England, and in particular, the the Rafi Quirk try is one that I think we really need to dig into against South Africa when they were in their backs against the wall. But with this one, through the autumn, France were running with Jalabern and Tamak 10-12. But this one, Jonathan Dante came in. And there were some interesting comments uh, in the Midi Olympique today from uh, Labitte uh, from France, who said that it was always the intention to start Jonathan Dante at 12, and that whatever we'd seen in games before was just window dressing. And that this had always been the plan, and he was also talking about the fact that we 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 then saw uh, Will Emson and and Greg Aldrete playing a different role in the lineup, completely throwing something at the All Blacks that they hadn't seen all autumn. And I just love the idea that they've gone 
everyone talks about one game at a time, but saw that we were throwing everything at this game against the All Blacks at the end of the autumn. We want to catch them completely cold. Uh, and like a poker player that's winning, I'm going to tell you exactly how I'm winning and why. And you've got to stew on that for months. It's just an intense level of mind games. It's really interesting that. You're right about it, because I think England did exactly the same thing. You know, England saw their schedule, Tonga, Australia, South Africa. And as much as Eddie Jones talked about one game at a time, we're only thinking about Tonga. They weren't at all. The whole thing was a construction over the, the space of four or five weeks in order to put together a game plan to try and beat the world champions. Um which which worked, but as as Eddie said to us today, you know England don't have a team yet that can that can consistently beat South Africa. But over the course of a month, a, a little bit like they did with the All Blacks in the World Cup, they constructed a plan that was going going to succeed. And, and France obviously did exactly the same thing. But and, and where where that project is worthwhile is just as John was saying, the All Blacks are going to stew now for six months. F- French rugby is jumping. And the French team will enter that Six Nations with with, with so much confidence and, and expectation around them, knowing that they can they can chuck two playmakers at teams, or they can chuck Jonathan Dante down that twelve channel and 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 pose different questions and and st- but still play the French way and still win the French way. I think I'd just like to add one word about Dante. People, I read in the in in one of the uh, lower end of the market tabloids this morning that. Uh, They've they've uh, got this new diamond in Dante. What Dante did is as old as the hills. Um, it, the, these days we spend ages trying to make quick ball out of slow ball, go round the corner, round the corner, round the corner. What could be better than doing it as they always used to do? And that send Ray Gravel or Charles Kent or uh, right up the middle, Damien De Allende, Manu Tuilagi, send them up the middle. You've got the blindside wing coming outside inside or outside the 10 as a dummy runner or maybe not a dummy runner you're bound to get over the advantage line then you can play and I think Jonathan Dante brought back rather than bringing in a new era he brought back an old one and good luck to them well I think that's really interesting as well because I actually this morning as sad as I am I sat down and wrote down the ages of the starting 15 for, for France and it blew my mind I was like whoa Jonathan Dante's 29 years old now it's worth noting there's only one player in his 30s in the starting team to play against uh, New Zealand at the weekend the average age is 25.7 give or take whatever that is in months um, but really young guys and it's Dante is one of those guys who was brought in by Guinovez never quite you know flattered to deceive they didn't really find a use for him and suddenly someone's decided that's that's the best way to use him and it's it's just really clever squad use You've also got to doff your cap to France in the, the way that they've highlighted talent. I mean, Jaminet, uh, 22 years old, has come from almost nowhere. Um, he's kicking goals like a G. He's um, he's coming onto the ball uh, at an incredible rate. He's taken the top 14 by storm. He's taken this French team by storm. And the depth that they're building is is pretty impressive. Of course, as we'll decide, as we'll talk through the other teams in the autumn, there's a lot of people that are cresting right now we're all very excited about the Six Nations. I have no idea how the hell it's gonna gonna fall out because <laughs> no. there's all sorts going on. Okay, um, we let Al Alex have the final word on that. Um, Alex, um, Al mentioned the, the Six Nations. There, we don't no idea what's going to happen. But let's be fair: is there a stadium big enough to house the people who want to watch France Island and France England? No, there isn't. Those are those are two enormous games, and as John said, when, when Test rugby is as as big. And as colourful, as, as as intense as as we saw at Twickenham and, and he saw in Paris, there are no better tickets in sport. And and 
they they will be golden seats for those games in in the Six Nations because they they just your team's buoyant as as Al said sort of riding this crest of a wave um, and it makes that Six Nations a, a, a thrilling fascinating championship head. Wow, well, we're almost breathless just talking about that game. Uh, coming up next, uh, the rest of the international programme over the weekend, beginning with England men and England women. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. England's victory over South Africa. Alex Lowe, how did they do it? Well, it, it was a win that, that defied convention in the sense that England conceded was it 18 penalties in the game, 10 consecutively in the second half, and all stats. All statisticians will tell you that you don't win, you can't win Test rugby matches when you concede that many penalties. And England were marmalised in that in that period in the second half. The maul was all over the place. The lineout was gone. The scrum was being munched, but they they found a way out. And and I've had a lot of feedback from people who were saying oh, England only won because because Pollard missed his kicks at goal and because Khaleesi couldn't find Creel with that pass, but. I'm a bit slightly annoyed about that because it's as if that is a skill you have to execute and England did execute and South Africa didn't. And if South Africa had executed, they would have won the game. England started with a meticulously constructed game plan which reminded me of of uh, Dublin and the All Blacks game in the World Cup where they came surging out of the blocks, hard and fast, scored a try early. The slight difference this time was that they... They actually set the platform for that first try, scored by Manu, by um, by winning a free kick from a scrum and then a penalty, then choosing another scrum, winning a penalty and then kicking the line out, kicking for the line out, 
So it was it was like a statement of we're not going to be cowed by this the power of of the Springboks. They they weren't taking them on um toe to toe because they were never going to win that. It was a, it was a case of, of of making a statement, I think, and just keep keeping caged that South African forward power for as long as they could. They did so. They opened a lead and then as South Africa started to to crank it up and crank it up, England looked at they looked a beaten team, as 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 you and Barnsley said. You wondered how on earth they'd get out of this, and and they were fortunate at times to to still be as close as they were. But I think enormous credit goes to the the spirit of, as we said earlier with with John, that the willingness to try and play their way out. You know, they they knew they that they'd lost that physical battle. They had they had to beat them in another way, and you had a you had this a, a fearless. Player like Marcus Smith, um, Henry Slade's accuracy, Joe Marchant, who has been a, was a bit of an unsung hero in that game. I thought, mm. just in the end, they they earned that that late penalty because they they refused to 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 be cowed by that Springbok power, and and that you deserve a lot of credit. You know, if that game was replayed ten times, South Africa would would win almost all of them, but. For those people who keep saying to me, well, the only one because Pollard misses kicks, well, he did miss them. That is still part of the game. Hmm. You still have to execute. Yeah, and I think watching that in the second half in particular, it was one of the finest examples, I think, of what we could call rope-a-dope rugby. Because they'd come out, Arthur's right, they came flying out of the blocks. It was an incredible incredible uh, move to see Tulagi, who we saw for three minutes, was it what we saw for him? Uh, and then he went off and then England had to make changes. But they were just chucking bodies in shapes that Salafka didn't mm. seem ready for. And in the end, when they were just clinging on, when the bomb squad had come on in the second half and the they were trying to squeeze and Eben Etzebeth was running around with just a crazy look in his eye. I mean, <laughs> what a player Eben Etzebeth yeah. is. Mm. And... You know, it just felt like, well, I've seen this so many times before and England were coming off the ropes. But then they just showed that little bit of shape that they, they showed in the first half. And that, to catch, you could describe it as a counterpunch that South Africa never saw coming. The Rafi Quirk try, which is yeah. from a from a functioning line out from England. They had quick ball to um, Slade at first receiver. Uh, we had a, a dummy run in behind from Marcus Smith and the South African defence were just fixated on Marcus Smith they did not want him to get the ball in their hands they tried to slam the door and all it was was just a short inside outside pop to Marchant who you're right had a game that people should be giving him more credit for and suddenly he was through and it was a two on one and Rafi Quirk could go in under the post and it was just exceptional stuff uh, against the run of play almost and what I loved about it uh, there, there were so many things I loved about that try but a lot of it was because of the, the second try that England scored um, from quick hooked ball from Jamie Blunt. You know, that that was the point. It was about fifteen minutes in. The Springboks got a nudge on on that scrum. But England got it got it in and out quickly. And South Africa and ran exactly the same shape. Marcus Smith looping around behind and the box thought that Henry Slade was going to give that ball to Marcus Smith. So they blitzed fast and narrow and Slade threw that beautiful pass wide to Freddie Stewart. England attacked down the right, comes back in and Stewart blasts through three defenders to score then you get to that point where England have to land a counter a counter blow second half they run the same shape South Africa this time are, are much wider because they're wise to it and England instead just play it mm. narrow that, the line from March and the inside, inside the outside in line 
and and then slay the detail from Slade to when you watch the slow mo, uh, he he drifts to to in, and looks at Dalende the whole time, almost with his eyes. He engages Dalende and gives a little no look pass out, and and they're through the gap. And that that's where we talked to John about the, the kind of the plan through the autumn. England were playing out the back a lot the whole way through, whether it was foul to to Smith or Smith to Slade, uh, Slade to Smith, and then. On this day, they ran t- they ran the same shape twice and did two totally different things, both of which were executed perfectly. Yeah, you know, just just um, in the list of um, of great performances, um, I really think Max Malin should be added to that Agreed. to come on to pick up the to pick up the pace of the match so well that you 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 were, you were involved in strike moves so early. Also, uh, he's just such a, a wonderful all round player. But what about his defence? I mean, he he made two tackles within seconds uh, uh, when it was really dangerous. He actually got under a driving maul. Which, which 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 I thought was wonderful. Let it, me just ask you this: it's, it's not a negative, boys, but England did struggle in the scrum, and they they when they were when they were in the lead they struggled. When they weren't in the lead, they they struggled, or rather, when they were being caught, they struggled. Kyle Sinclair, by this time in his career, surely he must be world class and dominant. We all love the guy; he's a great rugby player. But is he? Has he come through? But I'll ask you this both briefly. Has he come through, or is he now shaky at the top level? I don't think he can't. <laughs> That's the best offload you've ever done, Al. Um, I, I just think uh, the way I watched that second half in particular, I was really surprised that when he was on and Marla was on, that, that England went back as as rapidly as as they did. But I wonder partly whether that was their intention was always to just try and limit the damage and Marla's more of an aggressive scrummager. I was I, I do I, I was surprised that, that, that Sinclair struggled as he did and, and you might be right there, Steve. I, I think I think England's England's whole approach in that scrummage was to like I said, was to try and cage the box for as long as they could. And they they were they were canny early on and then uh, particularly when they, they brought on their replacement front row, which is better than their starting front row. I mean, they've got two world-class front rows and, and mm. the, those replacements arguably are stronger. And that's why Marla was, I think, on, on the bench to try and, and manage it. But they That's what it felt like. They they mm. they upped the intensity again. It, it felt like... It, it felt like England had a couple of experienced players and, and a load of rookies up against two starting units that would have got it that would get into any team in the world absolutely I, I, I'm afraid I'm still uh, win or lose and it was when they win it's easier for all of us in terms of business pleasure and everything but I have to say that uh, I still thought that the England were unbelievably lucky to get away with really poor selection I, up, up front in their starting team and on their bench I, I'm afraid Bevan, uh, Rod has been magnificent but not he's not of the highest class and Nick Dolly could have thrown it away with two awful, uh, awful line-out throws. So I still think Eddie's got a way, a way to travel. I think I think that's true. We have to acknowledge that he lost senior players through injury and, and COVID. Mm. Um, and I think looking back now, we all knew that Eddie was up to up to some tricks pre-match when he started talking about the box having said that England have a weak scrum, which which they never said, and it's sort of classic Eddie straw man argument which he used before the World Cup semi-final about no, no one thinks we can beat New Zealand and New Zealand are spying on us and it was all to create a, a smokescreen but in reality 
he knows England have a, don't have the, uh, a scrum to, to match the best in the world. And, and it's always been an area where it's been, it's been an, uh, an anchor point for England for so many years. And just now, they don't look as, as threatening as, as they would need to or, or, or have done in the past. And part of that is, is absentees. If you haven't got Luke Cowan, Dickey and Jamie George, and you haven't got Joe Marler, or if you have got Joe Marler, he's been in quarantine for 10 days, um, and you haven't mm. got Ellis Genge, um, who, who himself, like Sinclair, still has it to prove against Absolutely. the very best. Mm. But if you're without your senior players, and that's before you then... The, the only questionable selection is is Mako, should he or shouldn't have been there. But I think I don't think Matt Proudfoot is a big fan. And I, uh, having coached against him in the in the World Cup final, and mm. I think that, that still holds against Mako um, when it comes to... To international selection. I know a few people wouldn't be big fans of pro foot, actually, but uh, there we yeah, go. Works both <laughs> ways. Guys, I want you to give me a number out of 10 for England's autumn performance. You're only allowed to give me one number out of 10. I'd say eight. They were they were undefeated. Eight out of 10, undefeated. I think eight. I, I had, I think eight, because not only undefeated, one try conceded, and they. Managed to defeat the world champions. They, yes, beat, they, they beat an Australia team who were there to be beaten, who, who are one of the poorest that we've seen. South Africa are not poor, and England found a way to win that game, and ultimately that that's what it's all about. Okay, well, your optimism was persuades me to, to give them seven, not the six I was, I was intended <laughs> to, so that's seven. Steve, can I ask you a question? Yeah. You, you were quite critical of a lot of the, the youngsters coming in. Yeah. Has any of them changed your mind? The only person who's who's um, I opinion my opinion of, and it's only my opinion. Everyone can say it's just individual. Of course, it is. I think Johnny Hill was an excellent player. Now I think he's an outstanding player. I can't think of anyone else who has been either substantially worse or substantially better than I expected them to be. You don't think Freddie Stewart's evolution into it? No, wrong, wrong word. You don't think Freddie Stewart? Sort of coming of age performances in the last couple of weeks, he'll he'll definitely start full back in the in the Six Nations. And I, th- I think he'll definitely start full back in the Six Nations. Yeah, you've not been impressed by him. I, I have been impressed by him, but not not not. Com- so I'm jumping out my pram and b- b- um, bashing the air. Okay. Okay. All right. Any more questions? <laughs> no. <laughs> Carry on. Oh, well, it's my show. This is. <laughs> The the uh, the men finished with a win. The Red Roses also finished with a win and an unbeaten autumn. And how well they played! Uh, the bandwagon for the women's international rugby was really uh, rattling along. Great crowds, great interest, live on TV. It couldn't be better. The only reservation I have is massive scorelines in England's favour. It's great for England, but you cannot have a fifty-point rugby World Cup final. So, um, one of these teams, maybe Canada, have got to come through. But at the moment, fair play to England. They're going along like some combination of Lewis Hamilton driving a Rolls Royce. They're absolutely brilliant. And over to Jess Hayden, who's been following them all the way through. The autumn internationals are over, and England finished their successful campaign by beating the USA 89 0. The Red Roses head coach, Simon Middleton, played a team without some of his biggest stars, such as Poppy Cleal and Marley Packer, to give the newer members of his squad a chance. It was a sign that England's dominance may long continue. 
The Red Roses' unbeaten run now stretches to 18 matches, which is on par with the record for the most consecutive test matches won by any team, male or female, which is also held by two men's teams, England and the All Blacks. In Cardiff, Wales were unable to withstand the pressure from Canada, who beat them 24-7. Wales seemed to control the first half and led at half-time thanks to a try from Karis Phillips, who has returned to the team after a couple of years away. Canada's Olivia de Marchant was red-carded for a dangerous tackle at the 30-minute mark, but didn't stop the visitors pulling back an impressive performance in the second half, with four tries to seal their third win of the autumn campaign, losing only to England. But there was one cause for celebration for Wales. Shortly after the game finished, centre Hannah Jones was proposed to on the pitch by her boyfriend Dino Dallavelle, who is a prop for Clandovery and has represented Italy at the under-20s level. Elsewhere, Ireland captain Kira Griffin marked her final appearance for Ireland with two tries as she led Ireland to a 15-12 comeback victory over Japan. That's not the end of Griffin's international career though, as she has been announced as part of the Barbarian squad to play Samoa this weekend. The squad has some of the biggest names in women's rugby, including Rocky Clark, Casey Daly-McLean, Natasha Hunt, Rona Lloyd and Annika Pleese. The Bristol Bears prop, Simi Pam, also makes her first start for the Barbarians, a fantastic achievement for the full-time doctor yet to break into the England setup. Interesting, aside, aside from that, is um, France women defeating the Black Ferns again. That's two in a row against them for this, this series. Um, the Black Ferns have been all, all ends up, but you know, if we're talking about dominant performances in the world of women's rugby at the moment, England women versus France women. I mean, that's going to be a firecracker the next time they meet each other, at least. Absolutely, and well done, Simon Middleton and and all the players. Um, Ireland thrashed Argentina. Uh, Alex, we always we all like Argentina. Sometimes we think they're almost our second team, but um, they've lost their professional team in Buenos Aires. Um, they, they they've been beleaguered by COVID, but also something of the fire appears to have gone out in them. Should we be worried about that? Incredibly worried. It, it's it's the biggest rugby casualty of, of COVID, really, is, is Argentinian professional rugby. They, the, the super rugby competition has, has collapsed, really. Um, the the Antipodean teams are, are doing their own thing. South African teams have come to Europe and Argentina have been left stranded on their own with no professional team. So now their players are now back out, spread around the world. Um, the Pumas haven't had a home game in two years, maybe mm. longer. They've had to play all their rugby championship games in Australia. Um, they've come on tour. And, you know, they're a team who have um, captured the heart since 2007, mm. if not before, certainly before, but since 2007 and that performance at that World Cup, they've been a team that, that have really sort of epitomised the passion that we love about Test Rugby and you can get you can get caught up in the business side of it and the politics of it and the Pumas have always brought brought the passion and it just feels that their loss on the on the professional stage is, is going to damage the global game in, enormously oh. yeah, uh, yeah it's an interesting point Alex makes about them being one of the biggest casualties of Covid and, and it's absolutely true I mean with all of these results from the Southern Hemisphere teams you have to remember that you know they've been on tour for months and months and months um, which you know which is just it's just an interesting dynamic you know knackered in terms of physical but mental as well but on the Pumas um, you know zero wins in the rugby championship um, they've had a horrible tour with the exception of, uh, of facing it, Italy and there's growing concerns uh, in South America about the performance of Mario Ledesma. His contract, I believe, is up in December. And it's, what do you do now? Do you stick and stick or twist? Do you stick with this respected former campaigner who's 
got great experience, uh, you know, with with other nations in other championships, and and hasn't quite got it rolling with Argentina. Or is it time now to to cauterize the wound before we get into the the World Cup planning stage proper? You know, what do they do? You know, would you stick with Mario Ledesma? It's an interesting conundrum for them. In- interesting, and uh, just to, if I can have the last word on Ireland, um, Ireland's revolutionary approach to uh, rugby and to selection is. Is, is interesting. They pick the best team, the most experienced team. They've selected consistently. Uh, they've left the kids to develop in the under-20s and they're doing rather well, Alex Lowe. They have found, though, Steve, a couple of world-class players coming through. Um, Hugo Keenan in the back three is now... It, it, he was unfortunate not to make that Lions trip. Ronan Kelleher did eventually get out to South Africa and he, you know, he, he to me, is is emerging as a... As, as one of the best hookers in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. What, what a player he is. What about I mean, the, the other 13? I mean, the Ireland front row is so dynamic at the moment. It's it's actually, I don't, I don't know, Alex and I will always find a way of picking up the front row, but the way that they're performing at the moment is just breathtaking stuff. Everything seems to be on the front foot. And off the back of that dynamism, Keelan Doris, I mean, geez, what an emergence through this. I mean, he's... He must be gutted that the, the, these these international games are over now because he must want to play every week the way he's going at the moment. And just a word for Gary Ringrose as well. You know, he's been hanging about for a while. We've not mm. really seen too much. Uh, you know, he's he's he always seems like he's taken one step forward, one step back. But now he is really motoring at the moment. What I suppose we will talk about is when we head towards the Six Nations is are they peaking too soon? Are a lot of these teams peaking too soon? Do we know? Does it matter? Because at the moment, the Six Nations is a, is a mouth-watching prospect. Just last thing on that game on Sunday, I wish I could give Thomas Lavanini two red cards uh, for what he did. That <laughs> yeah. shoulder to the head. Uh, not even through yeah. the gate either. Just, what are you up to? That's his third, isn't it? Third no, well, test match red cards. That's a treble red, treble red. I, very, very briefly, we, 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 we must move on. Uh, Scotland, Al, um, they're always on the verge of becoming a really tremendous side, almost a top four side. They always just check a little bit early in that. 29-20 against Japan, they couldn't shake them off. Have Scotland had a good autumn or are they still marking time? Three wins from four. They defeated Australia, so they'll, they'll, a lot of people will be holding on to that as a benefit. We've, they've had the opportunity to, uh, to, to blood some guys, to bring in some new caps. I think one of the feelings that, I mean, people in Scotland will be tired of this old refrain. They refer to it as the Tooney Tombola. You know, what selection is Gregor Townsend going to make this weekend? It's now time. It's now time to pick a team and stick with it. You've, you've got some guys that have you built some depth and some performance and I've spoken on this podcast before about how the summer when the Lions tour was on that was the opportunity to cap some guys Josh Bayliss has came, come through and he's got a lot of plus marks from his performance against Japan um, some guys have, uh, uh, have really put their hand up now now's the time to, to knuckle down and the thing is, is that everyone else is performing really well and we're dead excited about the Six Nations Scotland you know will be pretty happy with the way things have gone they've been c- collecting wins they're going to come up against teams that are really roaring right now. So the, we're, what we'll really find out is what they're they're like in the Six Nations. Finally, uh, a footnote, a footnote history maybe. Wales beat Australia. Um, last minute penalty by Rhys Priestland. How lovely to see him back and all the people who booed him suddenly for the rest of his career. Suddenly he's the, he's their god. So that's slightly jarred for me. Um, I think um, there's a controversy re- regarding the refereeing. Which coach has ever uh, not been furious about the refereeing if he lost the game? 
Uh, it seems to me that Wales have another generation coming through. How quickly they're coming through, I don't know. And they still do not have anyone remotely like Ireland in terms of hard, experienced men up front. I mean, what, what I will say about that Wales is... I mean, whilst I said that Keelan Doris would, would is gutted that this series, uh, international window is closed, Wales must be absolutely delighted to have got out alive. Um, you know, the, the amount of injuries that they've had, the amount of players that they've had to pull in. Uh, you know, the interesting side note for them is that, that some of the tactical changes they made, we didn't see Jonathan Davis at the weekend because they wanted to see what the shape would be like. And I'm, I'm wondering how he reflects on that game, having watched it from the sideline, whether he was whether he thought maybe I could have done a better job in there I'm not sure Wales managed to cling on and just a note on the officiating Steve you're right no, no coach has ever been uh, pleased with it 100% it's the most vocal I've ever seen uh, Dave Rennie about officiating in the game but if you look at the Rob Valentini red cards mm. I mean there's there's not a doubt in my mind that that was red that 100% should have been we'll talk until the cows come home about the uh, the try that was the try that maybe shouldn't have been or the try that was uh, by Nick Tompkins where he went to one hand to try and stop a pass it hit the deck the official said it went backwards he caught it and almost bashfully trotted it in to go under the post that was the re- the officials looked at it and they went yep sure no that went back crack on um more narrative i suppose it was it was it could, you could not as a if you're coaching kids you could not have a better example of playing to the whistle because the wallabies all stopped and said knock on and the whistle never went and so off he trotted to to score the try on on the on the red card um it it, it was exactly the tackle that world rugby are trying to eradicate from the game it, it was is face on face it meets all of the um, criteria for the most dangerous tackle based on all of their research upright head on with force two heads in the same space um, it, it had to be a record I've got one question to you both before we go to God and, God, and Goddess it, and Goddess it, it involves selection Owen Farrell I'll be passing this uh, pa- handing on this hospital pass to you two Owen Farrell is England coach, Eddie, uh, England captain. Eddie Jones, the coach, has always said he is he is our captain. He's been there for years. I can never imagine him being on the bench. Alex Lowe, uh, will Owen Farrell, should he be fit in time, figure in the Six Nations, and if so, where? Will he or should he? Will he? Will he? Yes. Should he? I'm less convinced now, and and that's that's. So two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, I was asked by the editor to pick my England team to play Australia and I picked Marcus Smith Owen Farrell Manu Tuolangi as a, as a trio um, lots of others didn't Barnsley didn't and the reason I did was because for all the talk of ditching Farrell because Smith has now come coming of age we don't know or we didn't know that they can't play play well together if you, if you listen to Michael Checker he'll he he would say of Farrell, he is the player that brings the best out of others around him. Okay. Now, so you drop Farrell, Henry Slade? No. So Farrell hasn't played. He, he played that Australia game, then got injured. I had to do the same job for this morning's edition. And while wary of flip flopping, I just thought that the way that Smith and Slade played together, you, you, there are numerous examples down the years of players who lose their spot simply through bad fortune through injury, suspension, and it feels to me at the moment like England, if they were playing next week, should play with Marcus Smith and, and Henry Slade with Manu in between them. 
I think you've uh, you've answered the question within the question, Steve. Uh, Farrell will Eddie Jones loves Owen Farrell so much of England's shape for the last few years has been built around him when he's fit. I fully expect him to come back in. Mm. However, just from a professional point of view, I'm very much looking forward to rugby's version of the Gerard Lampard debate about the midfield and how how Smith, Farrell and Slade all fit into that one section in the middle. How how can you get two from three? I'm actually just well, looking forward to that for that a was long the, time. That, that was the props tumbler as the, <laughs> the, the two-lead tumbler. We're now going on to God or Goddess of the Week. Uh, gentlemen, God or Goddess of the Week. We'll start with... Um, one of you two mighty props, Alex Lowe. Uh, well, as ever, I'm richly prepared for this feature. Um, I'm going to pick Freddie Stewart on the basis that he was England's player of the player of the autumn, and they're the they're the team that I I saw all three tests live. Um, I'd like to give a nod to Tane Basham, who I saw live once against the All Blacks. I thought he was absolutely outstanding in that game for Wales. Um, but Freddie Freddie Stewart for literally rising to the occasion okay and this is going to come flying out of left field but uh, Pablo Lemoyne the head coach of Chile uh, deserves a nod Chile turned over Russia at the weekend they have they are in the mix to qualify for the Rugby World Cup they had defeated Canada to ensure that Canada will not play in a Rugby World Cup for the first time in their history um, they've got a, a playoff coming up against the USA they could they could uh, skip past the USA and qualify straight for the World Cup, and just an incredible growth for for a nation that's on the on the rise in rugby terms. Uh, turning over Russia, a team that we've seen many times in the Rugby World Cup, uh, Pablo Lemoyne, who led uh, Uruguay to the World Cup in 2015 as coach, just doff the cap to him. Well played. Love it. Is he going to be well, the next Pumas coach? That's why they call it Rugby World. Wherever you play rugby, <laughs> wherever you live, however small your island or big your country. Al Dimmock will know all about your your rugby. So what a what a magnificent Pablo Lemoyne, one of the great players as well. Yeah. One of the great players. For for me, I'm going to go in England. I'm very struck by uh, Max Malings, but I'm going to go for Courtney Laws. Mm. I'm old enough to have, have spotted Courtney, or not spotted him, but to have seen him first when he was a complete. Um, violent outburst waiting to happen. He was a flanker. I remember seeing him taking people on when he came on as sub at Gloucester, fighting behind the dead ball line and all sorts of things. And he thought, God, this guy's hopeless. The guy has come through quite magnificently, mm. even though he can't quite put on the weight he'd like to put on. And to have him as England captain on the weekend uh, says a, a, a lot about uh, Courtney, a massive amount, a fair bit about rugby and, and what it can do for certain people. And I think that he'd be a uh, he would be my god of the week, Courtney Laws. I also appreciated the moment from Courtney Laws at the weekend where he was so excited to get on the pitch and celebrate with the players <laughs> that he hadn't realised that the final whistle hadn't been blown yet, and he had to get ushered off the pitch. So, so it's to, to celebrate, also wade in with the scrap that was well, going one on. Of the, <laughs> one of the two. We'll never know. We'll never know. Thank you, Al uh, and Al. Uh, the two props. Next week we'll be trying to find someone out of the front row. Uh, we'll be back next week with the ruck. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 